Now, as you're, uh, as you're looking uh, for Psalm 73, let me ask you, uh, are you the jealous type? Do you ever get jealous? In particular, do you ever get jealous of unbelievers? I wonder what you think when you walk into the Village Hotel North, children, and you see other children walking in with floats, and you think, hmm, wonder what they're doing. Would I rather be doing that? Adults, as you see uh, the um, other adults going in uh, to maybe take some, I don't even know what facilities they have here, but it looks interesting, doesn't it? But we can get jealous of unbelievers all the time in, in the Christian life. Uh, summer, I think particularly, there's lots to be jealous about. As you hear about your friends jet off to summer holidays, uh, I mean, wouldn't that be nice to see a bit of sun at the moment? As people start to wear less clothes in the summer, you think, oh, wish my body maybe looked a bit more like that. Uh, when we see the sports on TV, we, we see so the World Cup, we see Wimbledon, we see the Ashes, think, yeah, if only I'd been a professional sports player, my life would have been uh, much better. And the big summer blo- blockbusters come out, you think, yeah, I'd love the life of a celebrity A-lister. Or just more locally, we can envy, can't we, our neighbours' houses, their clothes, uh, their gadgets, their bikes, their food, their marriages, their, personality, their personalities. Children, do you ever get jealous uh, that uh, you're not allowed to do what some of your friends are allowed to do? If only my life was like that. Well, if that's resonated with you, if anyone here this morning, you're not the only one. You're not on your own. And I don't just mean me. I don't just mean us together. I mean the writer of Psalm 73. We're starting this new series over the summer, and the Psalms are the prayer book or the songbook of the Bible. And one of our aims in this short series, we're only going to look at five Psalms, but one of our aims is to see just how much our God understands the ordinary Christian life. We'll see that the Psalms engage with the nitty-gritty of life, the complexities of life. I think we often think, don't we, I'll become a Christian and my life will be easy. And then we've been a Christian for a while and we think, well, it's not quite so simple. Well, if we're surprised, God's not surprised. And more than that, he's given us the resources uh, to get us through the challenges of life. And more than that, he's given us resources to thrive in life as we seek to follow him. I've probably given it away. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms because it resonates so much with my experience. But it doesn't just reflect back to me my own thoughts. It helps me on a journey from bad thoughts to good thoughts, from foolish thoughts to wise thoughts, from distress to peace, from envy to joy. And my aim this morning is that we all, we, we, we listen to the journey of the psalmist and we're equipped uh, to do the same. So let's uh, dive in and look at Psalm uh, 73. I'll read it out. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Well, this psalm starts with a declaration, a great declaration at the beginning. Truly, God is good to Israel. It's the headline. Truly, God is good to Israel. God is good. He's favorably disposed towards his people. He acts well towards them uh, to the pure in heart. Now, this doesn't mean to sort of elite Christians. That's sort of the ordinary Christian. Then there's the really pure. No, pure in heart means just, just ordinary believers. Those who people are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Those who are looking to Christ uh, in, in order to know how to live. And the declaration here is that God is good to his people. God is good to believers. Now, you're probably thinking, hold on, hasn't quite been my experience recently. And we'll see shortly that it's actually not been the, the psalmist's experience either. But that's why he adds the word truly. It's like, yeah, he really is good. Don't be deceived by your experience. Truly, God is good. Uh, why does he declare God's goodness? Because we don't always believe it, do we? If you're like me, you sometimes forget God's good. I mean, you never forget the words, yeah, God is good. I know God is good. But we, we sometimes doubt it, don't we? We forget to believe that God is good. And this psalmist is going to persuade us that God is good, even in the most difficult times. So he starts with this declaration. God is good to his people. Now, what we see in the next 11 verses is a whole load of reasons why God doesn't actually seem to be good. So he's got this declaration that God is good to his people. But then he's got an observation that the wicked prosper. Verse 2 to 12. Declaration, God is good to his people, but what I see is that the wicked prosper. How can that be? You look at verse 2 and verse 3. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps had nearly, uh, sorry, uh, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Yes, I believe God is good, but do you know what he's saying? I nearly stumbled. I nearly stopped believing it because I have seen in this world the wicked often prosper. And because of that, do you know what? I wished I was like them. That's what he's saying. Now, each psalm, uh, 150 of them, would have been written in particular uh, circumstances. And uh, we can't be 100% sure about this psalm, but it's most likely that it was written at a time where Israel, that's God's people, had been exiled to another country. That means they'd been taken out of their homes. Uh, they were prisoners. Uh, they were slaves. Uh, had no delights. And this was their song. They were oppressed by the godless. Uh, but what... What is wonderful is that this psalm is recorded for us because actually it's saying that sort of suffering that goes on will be typical for God's people until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And it's wonderful, isn't it, that we can use the experience of others and know that actually they are typical. And in one sense, it authenticates our experience. It says, yeah, what you're going through is a real Christian experience. It's not to say just leave it there. There's something to do with that, which the psalmist will teach us. But if your experience is looking around and saying, why do the wicked prosper? That is an authentic, real Christian experience. He goes on in verse four, uh, verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, or as the NIV puts it, and I love this, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. I think it's probably fair to say, isn't it, that Hollywood is probably one of the most godless places, if you uh, judge Hollywood by the content of the films that are made. But aren't the people there beautiful and healthy and strong? They're fat and sleek, aren't they? Uh, we're God's people. I don't need to take offence to this. We're God's people, but why don't we look like uh, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling? You've probably seen them across the internet this week. It's a new Barbie film. It's all just about eye candy. W why don't we look like them? It's very challenging, isn't it? We think, why have they got the easy life? Why is life so easy for them? And then verse five says they, uh, they are not in trouble as others are. You think they, they can't have the troubles that we have. They, their houses aren't too small. Their finances aren't tight. They don't have chronic sickness. And then verse six, pride is their necklace. What a description of a godless society. Pride, a sin in the Bible, is seen as a virtue uh, in the country that we live in, in the Western world. Uh, pride, we don't need God. We get on fine just without him. Thank you. Pride is their necklace. Or we could say pride is flown on a flag. Uh, verse six, violence covers them as a garment. In a world without fear of God, it, it's no wonder, is it, that violence can happen without comeuppance. Think of the freedom we have in this society to be violent towards the unborn, just at our own convenience. Verse eight to nine, a fear of God leads to oppression of others. Again, if we, that's exactly what Chinese Christians would tell us, uh, how their church buildings can just be confiscated and then bulldozed and their pastors imprisoned. Verse 10, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Uh, the people who are doing all this become popular. Again, we see that, don't we? Uh, just think about uh, online, the foul of the language, the nasty of the content, uh, the more clicks, the more follows, the more likes. Gentle moderation uh, doesn't attract a following because there's no fear of God. That's why it happens. Verse 11, how can God know? Do what you want. 
God doesn't know. And they laugh at God, they mock at him. There's no comeuppance, they're successful. Verse 12, they're rich, uh, they increase in riches. The psalmist starts with a declaration, surely God is good to Israel, but then his observation is that the wicked prosper. Now, if we're going to be mature Christians, if we're going to last the distance, if we're going to make a difference uh, with our lives, living for Christ wholeheartedly, we need to grasp wholeheartedly uh, what this psalm is saying. Life is not easy if you're a Christian. Yes, there are many, many joys, many this life benefits of being a Christian and we'll get there. But the gospel is not come to Jesus and everything will get sorted. Life, relationships, finances, physical health and mental health. Now, that's not what we're being told in this psalm. Now, it can be hard to reconcile God's goodness with the prosperity uh, of the wickedness. And, and we, got, we are going to get there. This psalm does do that. Uh, but before we get there, we have verse 13 to verse 14. He's gone from declaration to observation and now resignation. I wonder if you ever said verse 13 to yourself or something similar. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in, uh, washed my hands in innocence. What's the point in following Jesus? It doesn't seem to make any difference. Uh, what's the point in purity and singleness? When my marriage is so difficult now. What's the point in walking with integrity when it never gets appreciated? What's the point in being a good neighbour when all I get is ingratitude and aggravation? What's the point in getting up early to pray every day, lay my request before the Lord, but I don't see my prayers being answered? Verse 14, all day long I have been stricken. I follow Jesus, but I never get a break. Have you ever felt like that? The psalmist had. That's his description of his life. And that really ends the first half of the psalm. Uh, the declaration God is good, uh, the observation that the wicked prosper, and then the resignation, asking the question, is it really worth being a Christian? Is it worth it? Now, of course, this isn't right thinking, and we'll see why in a moment. But isn't it great that God tells us he knows how we feel? He knows uh, our thoughts that we very rarely struggle to admit to each other. He knows them. It's not news to him. And that's why he's given us this psalm to help us. But just for a second, I want us to think outside of ourselves and think further afield. Isn't it good this psalm has been given to the seriously persecuted church? Uh, when your village gets attacked in the middle of the night and a number are shot dead or hacked to death with machetes, isn't it great that God gives a psalm to cry out to him? Isn't it great uh, that when, say, you're uh, in Iran and you're arrested for being a believer, and you become a Christian and you get arrested and put in straight away, that God gives you a psalm to sing? How good it is we're not left with a Bible that suggests following Jesus is just about having picnics with other Christians on sunny days. Children, isn't it good that God knows that life can be really difficult. Of course, God's goodness and the suffering God's people uh, does need reconciliation. And that's what the psalmist does. But he doesn't do it before he, the psalmist is engaged in the muck of life. The psalmist knows that the ordinary Christian experience is a hard one. But now he moves on. He moves on and he wants to encourage us. So after the point of resignation, he starts thinking. 
he thinks. And what a good thing it is for Christians to be thinking Christians. When we're in trouble, we actually think, okay, what is the gospel? Who is God? Where am I heading? What has Jesus done? Those sorts of questions. And that's what he does. Verse 15 to 17. After his near resignation goes contemplation. And he starts to see things from God's perspective. Now, first thing he does is acknowledge his wrong thinking. Verse 15. He says, if I had said I will speak thus, I'd have betrayed the generations of your children. There is a difference between appearance and reality. The appearance is that God isn't good because the wicked prosper. And the reality is that God is good. There is a difference. And he's saying, if I'd have made appearance everything, I'd have been wrong. And I'd let other believers down as well. Now, it's definitely right as brothers and sisters in Christ to confess our sin to one another. And it's definitely right when, we, when we're going through uh, tough questions in life, uh, when we're saying, actually, I, I'd nearly stumbled. It's good to confess that to one another. I think the psalm gives us permission to do that. But what this psalm is also saying is we mustn't preach that to each other. We mustn't go around saying just, you know, we're having a bad day. God is awful. God has let me down. God is not good. I guess we've all been, we've all said that or certainly tempted to say that to other believers because we're angry. And actually, uh, the psalm says, no, if I'd have, if I'd have said that, I'd have betrayed your children. It's not easy to understand the way the world works. That's what verse 16 tells us. It says it's a wearisome task to understand why the way the world is. But there is a way of understanding it. Not every final detail, but there's a way of understanding the big picture that takes us from despair and resignation to joy and peace. And what he does is go into the sanctuary of God. Verse 17 well, verse end of 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In other words, the psalmist goes into God's presence. He goes into God's presence. He sort of draws back the curtain uh, of appearance and he sees reality. And behind that, he sees God. He starts to consider what God is doing in the earth. And he realizes that God is orchestrating every single minute of every single person's life. And of course, uh, we have someone who's already told us this, don't we, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have someone who, despite suffering, injustice after injustice, always spoke from heaven's perspective. Uh, recall his words that he spoke in the past and speaks to us today in the face of the challenges of being faithful. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He, he reminds us that riches on this life is not all there is. But he goes further. Whoever will save his life will lose, lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I am with you. That's what he says. The Lord Jesus Christ takes us into heaven's throne room and tells us the big picture. And not only is a man who preaches to us from heaven's perspective, he's a man who lives it out as the one who set his face towards the cross, made his life about faithfulness, uh, notwithstanding the many sufferings and persecutions he experienced from the wicked. 
So after the resignation of asking, what's the point of being a Christian? There's contemplation, he thinks, and he starts to think about things from heaven's perspective. And then he remembers annihilation. Look at verse 18 to 20. It's all about the judgment uh, of the wicked. Uh, Let me read verse 18 and verse 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And when we contemplate and remember who God is, we remember there's going to be a judgment. One day God, God is going to right all wrongs. And we know that because the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. There is more to life than what we can see. And believing in God's future judgment is one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. It's like, an a, it's like the ABCs, as it were. It's not just the ABCs, it's what we're saved from. It's the ABCs to give us perspective on this life. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the Thessalonian Christians. He, he describes how he knows their believers. He says this, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait from his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's the basics. There is a judgment that's coming that frames everything about this life. Now, it's fair to say we don't know much about why specific uh, suffering happens, particularly to God's people. Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why do God-fearers not prosper when God rules the world? But know this, never, ever envy unbelievers, ever. Because there is a judgment one day, and no matter how far unbelievers have gone in enjoying the pleasures and comforts of this world, it will be of absolutely no consolation to them when they face judgment from God. But for God's people, it will be the exact opposite story. The wicked, those who've made their lives, uh, uh, the lives of God's people a misery, will, verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, be like a dream when one awakes, they'll be gone. They'll be passed away. And God's people have been persecuted. It's like we'll be waking up from a nightmare. Children, do you ever wake up from a nightmare and you think, phew, phew, it's over. It's not going to come back. I'm awake now. That is how eternity will be described uh, for those who have been suffering persecution. So verse 21 to 22, it goes on uh, from annihilation to evaluation. He thinks about uh how he was thinking about the Christian life. Verse 22, he says he was like a beast. He's saying to be jealous of unbelievers is to be like a farm animal. That's what, that's his evaluation of himself. A dumb, a dumb animal who only acts on instinct without any reflection. Now, of course, we all do that, don't we? Even if it's just a, it's just a small instinct before we remember the gospel, all of us so quickly think uh, about this life and a this world only um, from this world only perspective in bible language that's living by sight not by faith but in the end to be caught up in jealousy envy uh, to be resigned that the christian life is not worth it is to be like a cow or a pig or a sheep foolish totally foolish no self-awareness just living on instinct not thinking remembering that we're pe- people who've been made in the Im- image of God, who God has redeemed, who God cares for, and one day will come back in judgment. And then the final few verses end on a wonderful consolation. Verse 23, verse 28. And the consolation is this. God is mine. 
God is mine. Uh, there was a book written not too long ago, uh, maybe about 20 years or so ago now, um, and it was called God is the Gospel. There are lots of benefits of the gospel, but the primary benefit of the gospel is that we get God, that we are his and he is ours. And when I say consolation, I don't mean sort of the consolation prize, you know, like, oh, you came last again, but, you know, here's a sweet, it won't feel too bad. This is real consolation. This is real consolation when life is really tough, when because you're a Christian, things are going badly. Look, what is the consolation? Verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. The believer is always with God and God is always with the believer. Now, when we say that, it doesn't mean that God is sort of in the molecules in some sort of cloud around us. He's with us in that sense. Um, you know, God is everywhere. We believe God is even in hell. God is everywhere. And when we say God is with us, we don't mean he's just sort of present in some sort of... Uh, uh, strange physical sense we mean god is present to bless us it means that god always has his eye on us it means that god is always working all things for good that we might be conformed to christ it means that we always have access to god god is with us even in the hardest circumstances and he holds us by his right hand the children well all of us really do you remember walking uh, down a busy road and what does your parent do when their cars are going fast? They hold on to you, don't you? They hold on to you tight. And sometimes it can even be a bit uncomfortable, but they're holding on to you tight because they want to keep you safe. They want to keep you safe from the traffic. And God is holding us by our right hand tight and he'll never let us go. But there's even more. There's even more. Uh, look at verse 24 and verse 25. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This life is a journey. It's a hard journey with many disappointments, challenges, and sufferings throughout. But at the end, it's a journey to a destination. And as we go through life battered and bruised, we only get nearer our destination, which is meeting our Saviour face to face. Uh, John T. Brett and I, in the last few weeks, we've had this sort of WhatsApp group where we're basically trying to compete with who actually looks the youngest. I'll let you be the judge. It's pretty sad. It's what uh, people do when they've passed 40. Uh, but we've all passed 40. We're on the wrong side of 40. And I've been reading a book recently. It's about uh, a life of this guy, it really the whole life. But he describes his life when he's in his uh, young 40s. This is what he says, as part of the description, year by year, Sorry, it's, a, it's not him. Uh, it's in the third person. Year by year, the stoop of his shoulders had increased. I always want to stand up when I read that. The stoop of his shoulders had increased. His long face had softened with time and the flesh no longer stretched so tautly over the sh sharp cheekbones. It was loosened by thin lines around his eyes and mouth. A few touches of grey were beginning round his temples. And when he saw his face in the mirror, he recognised the changes that had come over him with a mild shock. I tell you what, when I read that, I thought, that's me. <laughs> that's me. It's inevitable. It's, it's irreversible. It's all downhill from here. Probably all going downhill about 15 years ago, but really starting to feel it now. But that's not what the psalmist thinks when he thinks uh, about the passing of this life. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
The psalmist loves God more than he loves life itself. He loves God more than he loves his circumstances, good or bad. A famous writer put it this way. He said, when a man has found something which he prefers to life, i.e. God, then for the first time he begins to live. And you see, for the believer who is thinking clearly, life on this earth is just the beginning of eternity as we have God's presence with us now and we, look, we can look forward to being with God in eternity when we pass through this life to the resurrection life, eternal life. And that's where the Bible concludes. Uh, listen to uh, the last chapter of the Bible. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And that's why the psalmist can end this psalm with a declaration with which he started it. Even in the face of life throwing brutal punches along the way, even in the face of God's people struggling, even in the face of the wicked prospering, verse 28, last verse, he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign God my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. So we see the journey of the psalmist, don't we? And really, having read this psalm, having heard God speak, it's, it's over to us to live this out. And if we do live this out, we will have wonderful peace and great joy as we behold God in the ups and downs of life. Uh, the psalmist starts with the de- declaration, God is good. And I guess many of us will echo uh, that declaration. But you want to say not just God, because you want to say truly God is good. He really is good. Because of the observation, the wicked prosper. And uh, we'll all be tempted to share the psalmist's resignation, won't we? Is it worth being a Christian? And that's exactly when we need to think, to contemplate things from God's perspective. Remember judgment of the wicked. And remember that God is with us now. He holds us by his right hand. He will take us to glory. And there we will see him face to face. And at that moment, we will not regret a single thing that has happened to us in this life. We will not think we've missed out in any way. And having that future joy in our minds now, it means we can praise him even in the hardest circumstances. Let's do that now and respond to God in prayer. Father in heaven, you know how quick we are to be resigned to the fact that it looks like following you isn't worth it. Father, we are so sorry. We're so sorry to have such small faith. Please forgive us. Please help us to think clearly. Please help us to see things from your perspective. Please would we remember your future judgments and remember that it is a wonderful thing to be safe in Christ. And please would we remember that you are with us now by your spirit, guiding us, keeping us safe, and that you will bring us home to see you face to face one day in glory. Father, would these truths be treasures in our hearts and would we use them uh, when we are struggling to make sense of the world? In Jesus' name, amen.